Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, we're taking a closer look at the impact and management of COVID-19 in the hospital setting. Joining us today are Amisha Walia, Assistant Professor and Health Services Researcher in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Molecular Medicine and Center for Health Services and Outcomes Research at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. And Jane Seeley, a Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine, Nurse Practitioner, and Diabetes Care and Education Specialist in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Weill Cornell Medicine. We'll discuss their recent research on inpatient and outpatient management of COVID-19 and their experience in collecting and understanding best practices for a systems-based approach to care. And since we have systems on our mind and we are fully into vaccine distribution, we'll also discuss vaccine hesitancy and how you can address concerns in your community. You can access Jane and Amisha's study in the show notes for this episode or at diabeteseducator.org forward slash COVID hyphen 19. Jane and Amisha, welcome to the huddle. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Well, we are so glad to have you both on. You guys are such a great team. And actually, I will say a dynamic problem solving duo between endocrinologist and diabetes care and education specialist. You guys both know that this is how we solve problems in healthcare and health systems, especially in patient safety and quality when members of the care team work together to solve difficult problems, which is why I'm so excited to have both of you guys on to talk about this new paper you co-authored on COVID-19 and inpatient management for people with diabetes. Before we jump into the paper, I know each of you from different roles I've held. So Amisha from our past work in health services and outcomes research and Jane from our work here at ADCES with diabetes technology, I couldn't imagine two better people representing your respective areas working together. And I would love for you two to introduce yourselves to our listeners. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, for that wonderful introduction. Amisha and I are a team. I have to say, we do a lot of different things together, and it's been wonderful collaborating. My name is Jane Seeley. I'm a diabetes nurse practitioner and a diabetes care and education specialist and Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. I was working in the hospital during the COVID surge in March through June in New York. So that made me want to write about it because so much happened and we had this large database of patients. So I went to Amisha because she's always my partner in crime and said, hey, we need to tell people what happened and give people ideas about what they could do if Unfortunately, it might spread around. So Amisha and I co-chair a section in Current Diabetes Reports. It's the Hospital Management of Diabetes section. 
And we're always looking for authors. So if anybody wants to write a section, they should get in touch with us about inpatient diabetes management. It's a great journal too. I'd love you to take a look. This paper is one of the papers there. Every month there's something else on inpatient. And we've also co-chaired several diabetes technology meetings together. So let me introduce my coworker, Amisha. Thank you, Jane and Kirsten. Again, I just love what a collaborative team this podcast has represented because I've known both of you for so long. And it's been great to finally get to work with you both in this particular setting. So for background, I am an assistant professor at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Molecular Medicine. And I work in the Institute of Public Health in the Center for Health Services and Outcomes Research. And to that end, I'm an endocrinologist. I have a large diabetes practice. However, I also study various diabetes care questions, whether it's clinical trials or taking evidence-based to practice. And so it's been really fun to think about different ways we can utilize technology or new care paradigms to improve diabetes care. So you work as a team with patients, and now you're working as a team of authors. So, And you guys recently as co-authors came out with a new paper, COVID-19 and inpatient management for people with diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper? You know, it's a funny thing because Amisha and I spent a lot of time inviting other people to write papers for our section, but we had never written something really together, just the two of us and maybe a couple of other people, which we did elicit some help. When COVID-19 started to surge and things were so crazy in New York, Amisha was always calling me to ask, how are you doing? And it was really crazy. And we decided, I think it was really more Amisha's idea than mine at that point, that maybe we should write up what's happening now. Like, it's happening so fast and there's no rule book for this. We don't know what to do. We've never been in this situation before. So we decided to look into everything that was known so far about diabetes and hyperglycemia and management and so on, and put it together in a paper and try to get it out as quickly as we could, which of course is never possible, but we did pretty good in warp speed. And I think it is a good um, overview of the early times of the surge and then a little bit later. Amisha, what do you want to add to that? I would agree. I, If you all remember Illinois and Chicago, had their surge a little bit later and, and we, you know, flattened the curve. So we had a little bit more time to prepare. And I did check on Jane regularly because I was very worried about her and, and others. And what we saw in the early phase of the pandemic was, you know, there were these, what I like to call like mini learning collaboratives, putting on my quality hat where people from all over the country that knew each other professionally would hop on email or text each other and ask, well, what are you doing about this? And what are you doing about that? So what Jane and I, you know, would talk about is she would, you know, when I would check in with her is, okay, well, what are you doing about continuous glucose monitoring? Or how are you thinking about not the use of non-insulin diabetes medications in the hospital at this time? And, you know, there was clearly a few topics that kept coming up over and over again. And what I kept thinking was, what is everyone else doing? I'm so lucky that this is my area of research and 
my area of clinical care, but I couldn't imagine how all of these people are trying to help make these decisions or thinking about and planning. And so that was really when I said, we have to put pen to paper and help others. And of course, as Jane knows, it's never too late. And so it was, it was never fast enough, but I think what we really outlined in the paper was sort of these key topics that kept coming up over and over again amongst professionals of various care teams. So what are those key topics? You know, I think when we broke down the paper this way as well, you know, first was thinking about, okay, well, how is hyperglycemia and separately diabetes, how is that affecting or in relationship to COVID-19? And, you know, there was a lot of reports early on that there were a lot more patients who were coming in with diabetic ketoacidosis that perhaps had prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. There's atypical presentations of hyperglycemia and these cases of really severe insulin resistance. And then a whole you know, question of did type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes, does that put you at increased risk for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality? Then people were asking, well, what should our glycemic goals be? What should our therapeutic targets be? And that could be a huge debate. And then, you know, what are the potential areas of investigation related to hyperglycemia, diabetes, and COVID-19 infection? And then I think one of the key topic areas that came up, and Jane, I know can talk much more about this, was healthcare worker safety and the intersection of use of novel technologies such as continuous glucose and implementation of such. During the surge, all of a sudden, all of these patients are coming in and they're very different than the patients I'm used to taking care of. People are coming in with blood sugars over 500. They're using doses of insulin. I couldn't even believe it. For example, we had quite a lot of patients that we had to put on U500 insulin, starting them on U500. Not that they came in on it already, but that's how insulin resistant they were. All these patients with DKA, where were we going to put them? Do we have enough ICU beds? No, we didn't. What are we going to do? We don't do insulin drips on our general floors. Oh my God, what next? Maybe we should think about this old protocol we dug up from Umpierrez from like 2004, where it was sub-Q management of DKA. We got that up in warp speed. We were doing that. And then the hospitalists started to complain and they said, hey, the nurses just can't do all this. Everyone's got high blood sugar. Everyone needs their blood sugars checked four times a day or every hour, depending on which population they were in. And they can't do all the insulins. It's too much. It's too much. We have to come up with a way that we can manage more people. So we got together with the hospitalists and we came up with a protocol to temporarily during the pandemic, use a DPP-4 as an alternative to bolus insulin and only do the glucose twice a day. So it was morning glucose and, you know, a DPP-4, and then bedtime, it was glucose and a shot of a basal insulin. And that was a huge difference for the nurses and really took some of the heat off for them because I had to be really mindful. We did not have much PPE then. That was a really big problem. You were lucky if you got a mask a week of the N95s. It was very tough times. And people couldn't go in and out of the rooms a lot because it was a waste of PPE. 
So it was really one of the endos I work with um, grew up in another country and was there training during wartime. And she said, it's a war here. And I didn't really understand at first what she meant. And then I realized it. it's just that you can't do what you know and understand and feel comfortable with anymore because you don't have the time. How have things changed since you guys wrote this paper up until, like, say, right now? I think CGM is one of the things that is sort of a moving target. So at the time during the surge, it was actually a pharmacist that initially brought up this you know, why don't we try CGM? And I was so impressed that a pharmacist came up with it, you know, that they would even think about that. And I I love that. It wasn't a diabetes expert. It was a clinical pharmacist from an intensive care unit who saw what the nurses were going through with the hourly blood sugars and having to put the PPE on and go into the room, you know, to do the glucoses. The drips were outside the door. So the nurse didn't have to go in to titrate the insulin, but they did have to go in to get the blood sugar. So wouldn't it be grand if they didn't have to go in for both of them? But it was a lot of effort. And in the end, we got a very, very late start as a pilot. And at that point, honestly, we weren't in a surge anymore. So we did get a few patients then. I'd say maybe four or five patients at that time. But I kept saying, you know what? It's not over because we don't know what the future is going to bring. And the whole notion of CGM in the hospital, there's a lot of good reasons why we might want to do it, not necessarily for the accuracy of the number to decide how much medication to give someone, but what about an early warning system to prevent hypoglycemia in high-risk patients? So we actually just jump-started it again, not during the surge, because the nurses kind of didn't want to do it during the surge in my institution. They sort of lost um, momentum with that and said, you know, maybe it's too much for us. But now we're starting to do it again where we're going to see, you know, how accurate is it and also see if it could help us to prevent hypoglycemia or catch it sooner. So it's sometimes good when things are quieter and you have an opportunity to do something carefully and slowly to try something that you might want to use later on if there's another situation where you need it now. The other thing I think that people may not completely realize is we were really primed to answer some of these questions about continuous glucose monitoring because, interestingly, two groups, two papers, Singh et al. and Fortman et al., both had been working in this area one, you know, calling glucose telemetry, um, and the other one, you know, glucose is the fifth vital sign, both published in diabetes care, actually, you know, technically published after the start of the pandemic, but had been doing a lot of work in this area pre-pandemic. And so from a, you know, I always like to think of things as like evidence to practice. So, you know, these two groups and others, I'm just mentioning these two groups, but many others have worked in this space where they basically have now we have RCT data to support the safety and efficacy of its use in the hospital setting. And so I think we're really were primed prior to this and COVID-19, like everything else has sped up the need to utilize technology to perhaps change care delivery. And I think this is one of the most interesting questions that we'll have in this like peri and post COVID-19 era. A lot of places, you know, that we've talked about and bringing back up this like learning collaborative, we have a 
Illinois specific learning collaborative through our local American Diabetes Association chapter um, happening in Illinois where we get together. And what we found through that was in talking with different health systems, you know, when each individual health system looked into if they want to do um, continuous glucose monitor or how they want to do it. Some of them said, you know, we're going to do this under the research realm. Some said, okay, well, this would be under quality and patient safety. So very disparate sort of answers. And so I think what we outlined going back to the paper is I always, the health services outcomes researcher in me, as Kirsten knows, I always go back to like papers. And, and I really love this like work system design for patient safety called the SEEPS model. And we outline that in the paper. But I think what we kind of outline is, okay, if you're doing any kind of change, especially in this peri-COVID and post-COVID era, hopefully, what are the things that we have to think about in implementation? And so when you look at this model, you think about the tasks, um, who's going to place the sensor, who's going to collect the data, who's going to train the staff, technology, who's going to help with the data integration, like is the data going to go to the EMR and then come back or, and then, we, you know, you think about persons or people. So, you know, what team is going to be in charge and think about teams that you would normally think of like infection control, right? I mean, these are devices that are sitting that could be presenting, sitting out on the unit. And then thinking about the environment, where is this going to be stocked? How is this going to be supplied? Um, procurement and then organization. So, you know, what committee approvals do you need? What policies, procedures? And I think that was where, you know, I think our paper did a really good job of perhaps outlining that for people who are thinking, you know, all of this can be applied even to outside CGM, but understanding protocols. And one thing I do want to mention is that a lot of this takes work up front, which is fine, but you really have to also look at unintended consequences. So change for the sake of change is not necessarily the best answer, especially when people who are familiar with certain things and if it's a safety issue. So like I use an example as in CGM at our institution where what we ended up doing was bundling care and getting back to minimizing nurses or patient care techs going back into the room unnecessarily. So really trying to bundle, you know, the food with the glucose check, with the insulin delivery. And so I think you have to really think about what technology and what systems are in place that would work best for your department or division or hospital system. Likewise, we had already had a DKA protocol in place that we'd worked on about a year and a half before this. And so although we loved some of the other protocols that came back, when we went to our other collaborators like hospital medicine or pharmacy or the fellows or residents training programs, everyone came back to us and said, we think we should actually adapt the protocol that we already have because we've worked so long for that. So I think it's a really individualized health system to health system. Listening to you talk reminds me, you know, this is near and dear to my heart, but health systems and health systems management and logistics. You know, I sometimes think all of these pieces you're talking about, and I'm trying to think, how do I bring this together for our listeners? Because it really is a logistics question. And we've done this so well in other sectors of our economy manufacturing, finance, but the area where it's so important, our individual health or the health of our nation, we're just seeing this implementation. And actually, we saw something pretty incredible from you guys, which was taking a systems question and getting an answer out there pretty quickly within 
you know, six months. How about outpatients at the and moving to the outpatient setting? What have we learned from the inpatient that we can really bring to the outpatient setting within this pandemic setting? One interesting thing was the actual transition of care because visitors weren't allowed and endocrine team, we were doing consults remotely. So I had to teach patients and teach family members using Zoom. I actually found that it was very, very easy for people to do that. And they often stayed on a long time and asked lots of questions. And then I could email the uh, unit secretary on the unit and email to the patient so they would have a copy uh, permanently, you know, in addition after they left and to family members. So everybody was getting the education. So it kind of worked out really well. But then when people leave, I also knew that they were going to be continuing most likely to be doing remote visits, that they wouldn't be seen. So you have to really think about those things when you're discharging someone and make sure that you've gotten pretty far with them and you feel confident that they can do what they need to do because you don't know how much they're going to get on the outside because they probably can't go in for a live visit. And at least in the hospital, the nurses were there to practice with them. So that became an important thing. Yeah. I mean, I just really want to thank um, all of our outpatient endocrinologists and diabetes care and education specialists who I mean, literally overnight came up with protocols to be able to see our patients via telehealth. I know that was a huge lift. And I think people are doing really innovative stuff, uh, like putting you know CGM at discharge to see how people are transitioning, as well as actually utilization of some you know, of these intermittent continuous glucose monitoring devices as well as just getting our glucose meters up and running into systems where they can be shared with us as a healthcare provider. And so I think putting in that necessary work, although I always say we have to reach people where they are. And this is one big area where, you know, no person shall be left behind. If I need to call someone or my nurse needs to call someone and get the blood sugars over the phone while they read it, we need to do that. We need to meet people where they are. And so I think that this is going to be the crux of how do we utilize technology to meet people where they are. I did want to comment, Kirsten, about something you said, which was health systems being near and dear to your heart. I think we really as a society and as a science really need to take a hard look at how we think about health services research and outcomes research. I mean, nowhere nowhere more is that apparent than a vaccine delivery at the moment, right? You know, we have the, you know, the greatest leap in science with the actual development of these vaccines, but how do we deliver them equitably into those who need it is a whole question. And so, you know, I think that's the next frontier in diabetes technology is how do we take this technology to meet people where they are? How do you think the diabetes care and education specialist can address hesitancy? I'm hearing the hesitancy over and over again with people with diabetes and even some of our colleagues out there, people hesitant to get the vaccine. Can you address the importance of the vaccine and what can we do? Yes, I think that we, again, have to meet people where they are. I think that's the theme today. 
So it's a very individualized decision. However, with that being said, putting on my endocrinologist hat with my patients with diabetes, I have been walking my patients personally through what are the risks and benefits. And I think that the benefits in this case very much likely outweigh the risks depending on what those risks are. Now, each individual person is individualized. And, you know, hesitancy is not something new to us, right? You know, there's insulin hesitancy, there's, you know, medication hesitancy, sometimes in some of the areas in terms of diabetes and fear of hypoglycemia and fear of adverse outcomes. So that's not new to our group. What I have tended to do, and this is with both my patients and with people on the care team that may have questions, I say, you know, go to your trusted source so you can really, with evidence or what evidence is out there, talk to the person on your individual care team that can help you walk through the risk benefit for you. And hesitancy isn't a no, right? Hesitancy is just hesitancy. And so I always say, okay, what more would you like to see? When would you like to recheck in about this? And um, I do think that, you know, I do personally share my story in, you know, in various things like that, but not everyone has to do that. But I do think that the more people, you know, share their story in personalized confidential settings, I think that's helpful for people to hear. Um, not that anyone that has to do that, but I do think patients with diabetes are going to be looking to parts of their care team, especially the relationships they have with their diabetes care and education specialists to help them walk through these. And I think that we need to be a resource for them in that way. You know, I think it's really important too to have conversations with our patients about the fact that if you have diabetes, your chances of having worse outcomes with COVID are greater, being hospitalized or being sicker mortality is all higher. I mean, that's the reality. We knew this from early on, getting reports from China, from Italy, and so on, and plus what we've learned here. And the risk of some side effect from the vaccine is so much less than what COVID could do. So if we can get them to understand that they do have all the facts, you know, they should be able to consider all the facts, but why it's important for them personally to get the vaccine and then ask them what their barriers are and try to work with them and talk about it in a very safe way. Because we may be able to change people's behavior by spending the time doing that. I can think about how many times any of us, any diabetes care and education specialist, how many times has somebody come to you, they're sent by someone else who's tried to get them to start on insulin, they didn't want to start on insulin, and we magically have them go home on insulin that very same day. And it doesn't even take us that long. We know how to do this. It's the same mindset of how we do that and how we approach that to get people to realize that the vaccine is a better choice. Spoken like a true diabetes care and education specialist. <laughs> listen to people, right? Just listen. Yeah, shut up and listen. That's the best news. Right, right, right. And I would say too, I loved hearing early on the hesitancy isn't no. When you said that, Amisha, what rang to me was healthy skepticism. That's what it is to me. Where do you see all of this going? What do you see us learning from this pandemic? Where do you see us in one year? Where do you see us in five years? What is your crystal ball? What I really hope for is that we're able to 
advocate for a few things. One is advocate for payment models that really optimize, especially in diabetes care, this idea of being able to face-to-face see the people that really need to be seen face-to-face and then also utilization for technology for people who can meet us there and being able to have like incentive alignment for that. I think is going to be really important. And then also helping those who, you know, have the purse strings to say, listen, we really have to start funding some of this implementation work. Many of us try different things, some work, some not so much. We need to talk about it. We need to write about it. We need to share it. And we need to prepare ourselves if we ever need to draw forces again in a situation like this. So I think that a lot of diabetes care and education specialists out there may have had some great protocols, um, UCGM. Think about even if you want to write small papers for different small journals, newsletters, uh, ADCES in practice. I mean, there's many opportunities. If you don't want to write a full-length article, okay, I get it. I don't really like to do it either. But you can write small things that and a lot of journals accept letters. So you could actually uh, just write your experiences. If you have something meaningful that you have to share, share it. Any data you may have collected, review charts if you can, You know, find out what happened. Because there's a lot of information out there that hasn't been told yet. And I would really like to see it get out so we can learn from it. That's the most important thing. I have to say thank you so much to both of you guys for joining us today. I mean, I I learned a ton from you. And I think what I'm walking away is the three of us need to work on a project together. (laughs) Yes, I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again. And I hope we get a chance to talk soon. Thank you. And take care, everyone. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Jane Seeley and Amisha Walia. They took us through their latest paper on effective management techniques for COVID-19. From inpatient to outpatient, diabetes care and education specialists can play a critical role in helping individuals navigate the pandemic. Inpatient education is the first and in many cases only point of care to empower individuals. In the outpatient setting, technology like CGM and telehealth can limit contact while increasing effectiveness of treatments and access. Finally, when discussing the vaccine, it's important to meet with your clients where they are and understand their fears. As Amisha said, vaccine hesitancy is not a no. ADCES continues to advocate to ensure people with diabetes have accurate information and priority access to the vaccine. We recently joined the American Diabetes Association and others in requesting that people with type 2 diabetes are included in the first phases of the vaccine distribution in addition to those with type 1 diabetes and high-risk conditions. For more information on COVID-19 and access to Jane and Amisha's study mentioned in this episode, visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash COVID hyphen 19. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.